If you look around, it looks like the world's gone mad. People don't know the difference between animals and humans. People don't know the difference between men and women. Pain and turmoil marks almost every relationship that you could imagine. Divorce, child abuse, children coming into this world come in with a great deal of pain and suffering and come into a world marked by pain and suffering. Husbands that abuse their wives. Relationships that are anything but marriage with people living together in any kind of arrangement they might want. Jobs that are frustrating at best. <laughs> Difficulty meeting bills. Decriminalizing drugs. Defunding police. Because people are good enough and smart enough to take care of themselves. And then there's always that specter that the writer of Ecclesiastes pointed to, death. And even when things seem to be going well, there's still that thing called death. All around us, wars in Ukraine, Gaza, Myanmar. If we're not killing the babies in the womb, we're talking about killing the old people who aren't really any of use anymore in euthanasia. Asking doctors who took an oath to try to keep people alive to use their abilities to, keep pe to kill people. Viruses, cancers, injuries, violence, murder, the list goes on and on and on. And let's just, you know, just admit it, even if none of that has touched your life personally, you're getting older. I see it. And I see it in the mirror. And this aging process is driving us toward that reality called death. Is there any hope in such a situation? I like a quote that I read many years ago in the book of Job, and the commentator said, there's no such thing as a hopeless situation, only hopeless people in difficult circumstances. But to say that, he had to believe one thing. There's a God in heaven. Is there any hope? Well, if you've been here long enough, and if you've walked into this church knowing that this is a, a, an evangelical, this is a, a Christian congregation that believes the Bible and, and believes what it says about man being sinners, and then you'll, you probably already know that the answer is found in our, in our New Testament. It's called the gospel. There is hope, because there's something called good news. Good news which Jesus Christ preached. Good news which the apostles preached. Good news which the church has preached through the centuries. That good news about the fact that there are sins, that, can, that our sins can be forgiven. That the God who is angry with us can be reconciled. That we can know what it is to be accepted, even adopted by God into His family. And then being able to by His grace, live holy lives, good lives, meaningful lives, lives that help those around us, but more importantly, lives which are pleasing to Him, 
We can actually do that by his grace and the gift of his spirit. He actually dwells in his people. And we have a prospect of a place called heaven. And the new heavens and the new earth where it's just going to be righteous people. And there will be no more of these things that we're talking about. The old things will pass away entirely. Yeah, that's good news. I hope that that's good news to you. It's the only really good news. You won't find it in the newspapers. You won't find it in most schools. But it's the only good news that we as sinners in this kind of world can latch on to and hold to and actually find comfort in. We think of that, we think of Jesus. Of course, it all centers around Jesus coming into the world and dying in the place of sinners. Being buried and rising again and sinners acknowledging their sins and believing on him. And you can know that all that I've talked about by coming not to this table, not to this church service, by going to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledging, I am a sinner deserving of hell. You say, well, yeah, okay, I heard that. That's all kinds of New, New Testament stuff, right? That's all at the back of the Bible, right? It's all back here. Jesus and his apostles preach that. Well, I'm here to tell you tonight, it's not plan B for God. It was his plan from the beginning. When all of this sin began, when Adam ate the fruit that his wife gave to him because she was deceived by the serpent, right there we have good news. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, one verse I want to attempt to scratch the surface of this evening, and that's verse 15. And I'm going to read it from something of a slightly altered translation, just my own personal translation from the Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I've got lots of tools, computer things and whatnot that help me with this. But this is, you'll see it in your Bible. I just want to add a few words that you might be able to see them. Genesis 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and between the woman and between your seed and between her seed. He himself shall bruise you on the head, and you yourself shall bruise him on the heel. Now, these are very interesting words. Uh, this is spoken at the end of the words he's given to the serpent, as God is now sentencing the people of God. And we've talked about that in previous sermons. I've mentioned that in previous sermons. We've looked at that. And, and now God comes. And before he goes on to sentence the woman and sentence the man for their sins, he gives these words that we've just read. One man put it this way. These words. The Lord God himself was the first preacher of the gospel in paradise, the offended God comes with a promise in his mouth. Now these words were devastating to the serpent because he has just told the serpent, you are doomed, defeated, destroyed. You have no hope, no possibility of change. You are going down. But at the same time, these words which were spoken as a proclamation of disappointment, demoralization, and destruction to the serpent come with a ray of hope. 
magnificent, bright ray of hope to the man and the woman. Again, as one man put it, and he said, Satan's condemnation was man's salvation. And so do these few words, as Thomas Manton wrote, contain all the articles and mysteries of the Christian faith, which are the fountain of our solid peace and consolation. These words are the gospel. Now, some of you know that. Those are, you, you, know, you know the Latin term, don't you? This is the first gospel promise. But whether you know the Latin or not, I want you to go away knowing this is a promise of hope. And this is how this word comes to us, right? It comes to us with several headings. I'm going to put it this way. First of all, we have a declaration of war, then the identification of the combatants, and then the expectation of victory. Declaration of war, identification of the combatants, and an expectation of victory. And I don't like that word expectation because it almost sounds like it's hopeful in the, in the winsome, worldly sort of way, but it's... It's a certain expectation, absolutely certain expectation. But note with me, first of all, the declaration of war. We read at the very outset, I will put, in this declaration of war, we're immediately hit with the divine proclamation. God says, I am going to do something. I am going to change the circumstance. Satan thought he had won. There's a sense in which he has accomplished his purpose and turned God's creations his image bearers, and he has got them, gotten them to betray their king and to defect to his side. And so he has put enmity, as it were, between man and God. He has stirred that up. He's been an instrument, the agent for that, and man is now at war with God. But God steps in and says, Satan, you don't get the last word. I will put... A divine word. And it took a divine word. But that divine word was that I am going to put hostility between you and the woman. The one you think is on your side will not always be on your side. We're at war. A declaration of war. And then there's the identification of the combatants. Between you and between the woman, between the serpent and the woman. He starts right there. He says, I'm going to start right here, and it's going to go from here outward. There's going to be enmity between you and the woman who you thought was on your side, the one you deceived to follow after you. But then it's going to be between your seed and between her seed. And that word between is repeated, and that's probably just typical Hebrew, but it's repeated and helps us to understand God is really coming in and stepping in and saying, I'm making a, a separation here. I'm doing this, and I want you to understand that there's something going on here that's going to allow me to actually come as a gracious, glorious Redeemer King. Declaration of war and the identification. The first then are these, there's two armies there's two armies, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the word seed here, don't get caught up on that. It just means posterity. It just means children or offspring. And in, in the woman's case, it's going to have a physical aspect. A, she's going to have physical offspring. But it's also going to have a spiritual aspect. The serpent, it's not about serpents and women. You know, we already talked about that. It's not because now women and serpents are now going to, ooh, it sneaks. 
Right? That's not what this is all about. It's all about the fact that those who are aligned with the serpent are his seed. And those who are aligned with the woman, as she is representative of one of God's image bearers, are God's seed or her seed, right? So it's, it really is her seed, it's his, the serpent's seed, those who are like the serpent, and those who are like God. The seed of the serpent. And we saw this before, so let me just read a couple passages for you that talk about what the seed of the serpent looks like and, and, and how we identify them. We read about them in John chapter 8 and verse 44. And Jesus says to the Jews there in his midst, and we'll come back to this passage again, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's a murderer and a liar. He used his lies to deceive Eve. And he murdered them as image bearers of God. Brought death through his efforts. Or we read in 1 John chapter 3. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. He goes on to say, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And Paul emphasizes that for us, that there is enmity between man and God. The carnal mind is at war with God, is at enmity with God. Romans 8 and verse 7. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. Outside of Christ, you cannot have a mind that will actually produce a will which will actually do the will of God and want to do the will of God in a way that's anyway pleasing to God. James chapter 4 and verse 4, James highlights this as well. And he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are the seed of the serpent. That's his army. All of those who have those perspectives. Murderers, liars, they want to follow like their father. They are like their father. They don't want to be subject to God. They don't want to obey God. They want to live for themselves, they think. But in essence, not only for themselves, but they're living for the devil. That's what the Bible says. I, I'm, not, I'm not a mean Baptist up here saying these things. It's a Bible. And the seed of the woman are those who then are the little children, as John called them, who act righteously, who follow like the Son of God and seek to obey God. Those who have been redeemed from their sins have been delivered from their sins. And that grace I talked about earlier have that grace in their life so they can actually want to do what God says they should do and have the ability to do what God wants them to do. Those are the seed of the women, of the woman. And we see them in the second army. Those are the two armies. But the text very quickly changes from talking about those two armies. And maybe it would be appropriate really to identify something of the history of how this worked itself out. And I wrestled where to put this in because 
Well, just in my mind, I was having a hard time fitting it in. But the fact of the matter is that these two armies are constantly at battle, and we see that as we open up our Bibles. If you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 3, look over at Genesis chapter 4, and you'll probably have a heading at the top of Genesis 4, something about Cain and Abel. Cain is one of the seed of the serpent, and he shows it to be true by killing his brother Abel. Because Abel, in faith, is offering a sacrifice acceptable to God. Cain is not, and sin masters Cain. We'll come to this later. But then he murders his brother. And you work your way through the Old Testament, and you constantly see that there are those who are standing for God, and they're at war with those who are not standing for God. Those who are not for God are trying to squelch, trying to put out the light. At every possible turn. And it reaches an apex there in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. Where the whole people of Israel find themselves in bondage. As slaves. No prospect of escaping this country where there is where the superpower of the day. They're just slaves. And there they are. And, they, and Pharaoh wants to kill them all. Right? He passes laws. Kill all the male babies. Now, I think it's really rather stupid because you're killing off your slaves. But, all right, well, let's kill the male babies, right? Because we don't want them to get so big because I'm fearful they're going to fight against us if we go to war. And so they're trying to destroy the people of God and remove any possibility that a Messiah, a deliverer, the, the righteous one might come. And, and it, all the way through the Old Testament, it just happens time and time again where the, the line of David is attacked and it gets down to one person who's been hidden somewhere. And it looks like all the promises of God are coming to an end. And yet, boom, here he comes and he stands up and God brings him out again and continues his work. And we come to the New Testament. What do we see? Jesus is just barely born. And Herod says, kill everybody two, two years and younger. Why? Because the seed of the serpent is trying to destroy the seed of the woman. Trying to stop the, the champion from actually coming. We're going to see him in just a minute from coming onto the scene. And in the days of the apostles, we see Satan at work in the, in the body, even within the body, where Ananias and Sapphira, filled with Satan, by Satan, filled with lies to, to lie against the Holy Spirit. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to destroy this first community of, of God's people. And those who are full of deceit and fraud, a son of the devil in Acts chapter 13, where this man tries to keep the gospel from going forward. This is what we see, these two seeds at war, one with another. The wonderful thing is that God is always fighting for his side. And so it always wins. may not look like it's winning at times. And it gets really, really, really small and weak and dangerous. And that's when God says, yeah, that's just the way I like it. So that all the glory goes to him. He's the one who's preserving his people. Back to our text, then, we've, we see something of the identification of the combatants and something of how that war works itself out. And it, I mean, literally, I could, I could spend all night, we could just go chapter after chapter after chapter and look at all that, but I'm not going to do that. 
because it's supposed to be a meditation. But let's move on then to the, our text, because our text then goes from the armies to the champions. And it goes from the plural to the, to the singular when it says, He himself shall bruise you on the head. Speaking of the seed of the woman who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent, you yourself, because remember he's talking to the serpent, you yourself shall bruise him, the one seed of the woman. And this really speaks of the two champions. Satan is his own champion. He's his, the devil is his own champion. He's going to fight his own battle. And he's going to go at war with trying to deceive any he can and murder all that he can. He is that great dragon who is thrown down out of heaven, as we saw in Revelation chapter 12. He is that dragon, the serpent of old, Revelation chapter 20. He is that murderer and that liar who from the beginning, and he is behind all of the activities that are going on with his hordes, seeking to use his instruments, his agents, his armies to keep the one great champion of the seed of the woman from coming on the scene. That's his goal. Because if he comes on the scene, he's been told what's going to happen. And from his vantage point, it's not going to be pretty. But that champion, he does come on the scene because God has his purposes in showing forth his glory through his grace. And so Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, does come on the scene. Let me say I'm kind of swapping my notes back and forth here, changing things as I go. So if you notice that the seed of the woman can be found in places like Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. Many of you will know the text. The angel has come to Mary who said she's going to be the mother of one, the Messiah, the King, the Savior that's coming as the promised one from God. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For this reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Or, or another way to understand the, the Son of God, the child will be called Holy. He's the Son of God. This is one who is going to be preserved. The Spirit's going to come, and this champion's going to come on, on the stage. In Matthew chapter 1, we read the, the quotation of the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God with us. This is the Word that became flesh. This is the divine second person of the Godhead and the way in which he came into the world took to himself flesh. This is part of that, the confession of the church throughout the ages is that Jesus came into the world, took to himself human flesh, lived among men, a righteous and a perfect life, and died on the cross, was buried, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. But he first had to become a man. Seed of the woman, he had to be born of the woman, and he was born of the woman. Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the seed of the woman. And 
And we read in 1 John chapter 3, and that's where I've been quoting all of these verses from 1 John. I've been 1 John chapter 3, beginning about verse 8 to verse 10. But we read in that same section, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Seed of the woman, the champion, the Lord Jesus Christ is the champion who came. And we see in his life the battle again worked out as these two champions go at it hand-to-hand combat there in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, and Satan throwing down his, his, his temptations to try to trip up the, the, the champion of God, the, the Son of God, to trip him up and say, well, if I can destroy him from actually accomplishing his purpose the way God has ordained, then I win. But where Adam failed, Jesus didn't. Not one temptation found a root in his heart and he rebuffed every single one of them with the very word of God. And then we see this champion of, of God going about showing himself to be the champion who's come in to address these kinds of realities that we talk about. He came in and he heals people of all kinds of diseases. He casts out demons with a word. He even conquers death, raising Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, and then ultimately himself. All of these things, the pictures and the realities that have come into the world because sin has entered into the world. And he said, these things are not going to stand against me. He conquers them all. The Jews are constantly going after him. He calls them a brood of vipers. Interesting choice. You brood of serpents. You're just like your father, he says. You're just like your father. God is our father, they said. No, if, you were, if God were your father, then you would hear me. You would follow me. So Jews in the, attack Jesus. Even his own disciples are, you know, get snared at times, right? Peter, no, Lord, don't go to the cross. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Peter. And he could have said this, right? Peter, my, my child. No, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan's at work. And then Satan enters the heart of Judas to betray the Son of God. And it's the hour of darkness we read about. It's darkness's great hour. It's the evil one's great hour to put the Son of God on the cross and to kill him. But he came. And in his death and burial and resurrection disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he made public display of them having triumphed over them. He came, we read in the book of Hebrews, and took to himself flesh and blood like his children. And he himself likewise took of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil and ultimately did that, didn't he? When he died, was buried, and rose again. Conquering. From hand-to-hand -hand combat 
to the resurrection and the ascension. Now come back to our verse here. Because the verse tells us not only that there's going to be these two champions, but it tells us how to expect it to work itself out. There's an expectation of victory. We've seen this already. He himself, that is, this one champion, is going to do something incredibly unique that only he could do. It would take God to do it. Satan is too powerful for any one human being to do it on himself. But he shall bruise you on the head. That's what he did. He utterly defeated him on the cross when he died under the wrath of God, was buried, and then rose again from the dead. He didn't stay dead. It was so depressing just to go to the mausoleum where the burial took place and to see so many little crosses with some figure on it of somebody who's still dead. Jesus is not dead. He's not hanging on a cross. He was buried and he came out of the tomb and he rose again. And he smashed Satan's head. He is at best, that is Satan is at best, a dog on a leash. He can charge, but he cannot touch. And he is one day going to be yanked back and utterly defeated. Finally and completely. When Jesus returns. But you notice it says here, you yourself, this serpent is going to bruise him on the heel. Doesn't matter really where you get hurt, does it? Just the other day, I put some nice alcohol hand lotion on, or hand clean, the sanitizer on my hand, and I found out I got all kinds of cracks on my hand. <laughs> <sighs> right? And, and, and if I can't do anything for the next, you know, gotta get, because it hurt. You stub your toe. Oh, man, until I get that, until that, ah. Uh, And our feet really hurt. Our feet are really important. You ever notice that? You never notice how important your feet are until they start hurting. Like you get that plantar fascia or whatever that little thing in the, in the heel or, or, or you've got this thing on the side that comes out. And, it's like, and when your feet start, or the bottom of your feet, I've got flat feet, I've got arched feet. And you go, you've got to stand on these things a lot. And they hurt. It was not a simple thing. He bit him on the heel. I said, well, that's just a small little scratch. No, it hurt. That small little scratch was being scourged, was having a crown of thorns put on his head, and having people beat him, slap him, mistreat him, spit on him, and then ultimately have him carry his own cross as far as he could, and then hang him on this cross where he might die. That's the biting on the heel. It was painful. But in comparison to all that he accomplished and all that he did to Satan, it was just a bite on the heel. But that's how he won. By crushing the serpent's head and being bitten in the process. And you just see Satan trying to avoid the whole thing. He keeps trying to get him off track, do some other way. He came to do the will of his father. And was obedient even to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Why? 
to set his people free, to win the battle for his people. Everybody in this room tonight is at war. No, there, there's, there's no planes flying over, dropping bombs. There's no tanks running through our streets and people throwing hand grenades or snipers shooting at us. But we are each and every one of us at war. The question is, with what or with whom? And it's not with illiteracy. It's not with poverty. It's not with hunger. It's not with communism. It's not against tyranny or human tyranny. Do you sense anything of hostility in your heart? Because you are hostile towards someone. And here's the big question. Who, with whom, are you at war? Are you hostile toward God? And still one of those who doesn't want God's laws in your life, doesn't want to humble yourself and believe that Jesus is really the only way to save me? Are you still one of those who is at odds with God, at war with God, not reconciled to God? Well, I'm not at war with God. Well, are you reconciled to Him then? Have you gone to Him through Jesus Christ, humbling yourself and confessing your sins, and embracing Jesus as your only hope, your need to be delivered. Have you done that? If you've not done that, you're at war with God. You are a child of the devil. Biblical language. And you're at war with God. You are hostile toward God. Now, you may not show it in outward vehemence. It may just be a quiet resistance. I'm just going to try to slip under the line. No, there's no slipping by. Is there hostility in your heart toward God? Is there enmity in your heart toward sin and the devil? When you see what sin and God's judgment upon mankind has wrought on the earth, do you have that enmity, not just, oh, I don't like these difficult circumstances, but sin caused this. Have you turned your back on living for yourself and living under the rule of Satan? Because if you're not at enmity with the devil and with sin, then this work has not been done in you. When God saves a sinner, He changes him. He changes his disposition. The things we used to love, we don't love anymore. And the way we used to go, we don't want to go anymore. We don't run to run in the paths of sin anymore. We want to run in the paths of holiness. We want to draw near unto God. We want God to draw near unto us. One of our greatest griefs is when God is distant from us. Why? Because I love him with all my heart. He gave his son for me. And so anything, anything that puts distance between me and God, 
I have enmity toward that. I am hostile toward that. And you know what puts distance between us and God? The Bible calls it sin. That is violating God's law. Not doing or being what God requires. My friend, you're at war. You are at war. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the test to apply is not whether we feel happy or better. Not whether we have a joy that we did not have before. Or have shed some particular sins. But whether we have come out from under the dominion of Satan. Do you know God? Are you reconciled to him? Are you really in the light? These are the questions. The Bible leaves no room for neutrality. There's no third option. Child of the devil. Child of God. Which is it? Unbeliever who does not subject himself to the law of God. Believer who is resting wholly and solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and has his sins forgiven in the blood of Christ. Only two options. And it's right here at the beginning. But do you see the hope in this world that was we looked at last time was just marred with sin at every single point? God has already said, there's hope. I have defeated Satan. I will defeat him entirely. My champion is coming. He will crush the serpent's head. Believe it. It wasn't just a second. Oh, you know, boy, everything got out of hand. God didn't sit up there. Oh, man, why did Adam do that? Now what am I going to do? Well, let's try it with the Jewish. We'll have a Jewish nation. We'll try that. That fails. Uh, ah, God's not at wit's end. Right here at the beginning, he's already told us the champion is coming. And all that he's doing is leading up to that champion coming and accomplishing the victory through his death, burial, and resurrection. This is good news. This is where there's hope. If you're wrestling with sin, child of God, if you're wrestling with sin and you just feel like I'm never going to be free from this, don't give up hope. Your champion has already won. We're coming to the table to remind us of how his heel was bruised, crushed, so that we could be set free, so that we have access to grace. So that we can live holy lives. We're coming to remember our Savior, our champion, who won on our behalf. Give thanks for our champion. And then be motivated. Go to him to find the grace necessary to be free from your sin. To mortify your sin. He's already crushed the serpent's head. Oh no, the battle's not completed yet. He's coming again, in which it'll be finale. You read in the, in the book of Revelation when it says there's going to be a big war? No, no, it's not going to be a war. It's called a rout. They're all going to stand up and it's going to be over. It's not going to be anywhere close to equal. There is no other 
option but to humble yourself. Flee to Jesus Christ right now. Do not wait. Do not think, I've got to have some more things answered. No, if you're a sinner, you have one hope. And it's found in Jesus Christ, the champion. That God himself promised from the very beginning. And he will set you free. Oh, brethren, may God help us to rejoice. And may God help us to put to death every last vestige of self-autonomy. We can't do it. Autonomy is a fiction. You can't push God out of your world. You can't. Satan tried. Satan couldn't push God out of his world. God says, no, I'm coming. Adam and Eve tried to push God out of the world. Adam! Right? No, God's here. You're not going to get rid of him. You can't ignore him. But you can go to him. You can go to him through Jesus Christ. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious to write your word upon our hearts, the things that are true from what have been said, the things from your word, impress them deeply upon us, that we might be more pleasing to you. Lord God, come to those who sit in darkness, open their blinded eyes, deliver them from the bondage to sin and the devil. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.